Jesus Christ was a man that traveled through the land, hard-working man and brave. He said to the rich, give your goods to the poor, so they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Yes, Jesus was a man, a carpenter by hand, his followers true and brave. One dirty coward called Judas Iscariot has laid poor Jesus in his grave. He went to the preacher, he went to the sheriff, told them all the same. Sell all of your jewelry and give it to the poor, so they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. When Jesus come to town, the working folks around believed what he did say. The bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Now the working people followed him around, sang and shouted gay. But the cops and soldiers nailed him in the air, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Well, the people held their breath when they heard about his death. Everybody wondered why. It was the landlord and the soldiers that he hired to nail Jesus Christ in the sky. This song was made in New York City of rich mans and preachers and slaves. If Jesus was to preach like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave. Yes, Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand, his followers true and brave. One dirty coward called Judas Iscariot has laid poor Jesus in his grave. And welcome to Here We Stand. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice, November 6th. And that, of course, is our good brother, Woody Guthrie, Depression-era singer and, like Jesus, on the road with the people out there. We try to embody that every week on this show, our seventh year of broadcast. Today we're going to take a step back. I know for the last few shows, if you've been listening on our archive and listening in live, You'll know that uh, me and a fellow Republic Alliance member, Owen Lucas, have been talking about tactics and strategy and how to fight on the ground. Today I thought we'd step back and talk a bit more basic. I entitled the show, The Revolution is Now, in Heaven and on Earth. What is our spiritual republic? What do we mean by that? Let's talk about spiritual politics today, because it's really one and the same. You know, somebody once said, I remember when I was studying at seminary for the United Church Ministry, before they booted me out, um, I remember saying to people, you know, this is a false debate about the difference between life and, and spirituality, heaven and earth, because it's really, you know, when you're fully human, you're fully divine, that's the point, and to me that was the example of Jesus and any true rebel who sticks by the people. And I remember there was a guy who used to come into our radio show when I did my radio program down in 
East Hastings Street in Vancouver, Vancouver Co-op Radio for nine years before it got shut down. And there was a guy who came, used to come in all the time. His name was Nathan. He was, a, like me, blacklisted. He was a professor who got tossed out on his ear, lost his family and everything. He became a street composer. And Nathan uh, came on live on the show once, and he, he sang this song. And it was a lot like Woody Guthrie. And one of the lyrics was, I saw Jesus today lying in the alleyway. And for me, it's that close. The, the new world, the embodiment of the, what we all strive and long for, it's as close as our own elbow, but we often can't see it because we're trapped in other people's minds. We're trapped on ideas and things fed to us all the time. And it's realizing that that truth is as close as, as our own experience of it. So we're going to talk a bit about that today, and I think it's really um, appropriate time to do it, because the truth is that it's among us now. This new world we're struggling for, it's already here. We just have to live in it, and that's what we try to do. And, of course, it's, it's kind of strange these days for me. It's, it's 30 years in the struggle. I feel sometimes like a uh, sole survivor of Atlantis, because, you know, when you're talking about the truth of genocide in Canada and then around the world, those of us who surfaced this and then saw it all buried again, uh, you know, you get the sense that, well, there aren't a lot of witnesses left to this thing anymore. And as one of the surviving witnesses, the thing I would say to folks is if you're talking about, you know, understanding the enemy, and that's in Sun Tzu and the Heart of War, he says two basic questions, know yourself and know your enemy. Uh, knowing the enemy is very simple. You just go and to know what we're up against. It's all been done before to many different people. It's just happening to more of us now, so we think it's a crime. But if you go to, and here's something I'd like you all to do. Go to murderbydecree.com, and then go to the section that says ITCCS Archives. That's the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State that led this campaign for many years. Murderbydecree.com, go to ITCCS Archive. And then scroll down, and you'll see something that says the International Common Law Court of Justice, case number one, genocide in Canada. Now, on that link, you'll see all of the hard evidence of how we proved genocide in Canada. Years and years before it was acceptable to talk about mass graves and disappearances, and even the perpetrators are using the word genocide now because of our campaign and pressure from below. Well, all of the hard evidence is there. Watch it for a few hours. Get into the school system. There's no excuse of ignorance because the truth is all there. And when you look at that evidence, when you look at the eyewitnesses talking about the crimes they saw, burying children, seeing their friends murdered and raped and sterilized in these medical programs, you know, uh, you'll see what we're up against now. You'll see that COVID measures the global corporate police state is nothing new. So to know the enemy, look at that site, first of all. To know ourselves, that's in a way the harder part, because that's a little bit of what we're going to go into today. And um, one of the, the first things we realized when we, we talked about how this movement has spread, we, the Republic Alliance, which consists of people in a dozen countries now, in Australia, Europe, and here on Turtle Island, North America, people who are struggling to set up common law republics, sovereign movements to reclaim what is ours already, the earth and its wealth, and government and law and religion and everything. That Republic Alliance movement now is actively growing. And, you know, it's really amazing. I do these Zoom calls all over the world with people. I was just on a call today with the Scandinavian Council of Common Law Republic Assemblies that are forming. 
And uh, it's amazing to meet strangers who have read my books, who have taken the idea of the common law that we first championed in the case against Pope Benedict and Queen Elizabeth that really forced them both out of office in 2012-2013. On the wake of that, 10 years ago, this common law spark that we ignited has spread everywhere. Everyone's talking about it now, just like they're talking about genocide in Canada. It shows you the power of persistence. It was only a few of us, but we never gave up. And that's a lesson to all of us. And uh, you can follow where a lot of that has led, republicofkanata.org, K-A-N-A-T-A. For you newcomers, that means Ganata, a Mohawk word meaning where the people sit as one around the council fire, that vision of equality. And you'll see in the Republic Alliance debates that go on and the things we've been sharing over the weeks, the fact that people reach a certain point and we talk at a very theoretical level. But what we're missing is a layer of what in military terminology is the operational leadership. The people on the ground who take this theory and put it into practice, the ones who lead the protests, who occupy and reclaim the land, reclaim these criminal church uh, buildings like the indigenous people all over Western Canada are doing as we speak in alliance with our republic. When you see people on the ground doing that, it's because they have a, a whole cadre of operational leaders who've been trained to take action on the ground. Now, that's the way you connect the, the, the small wheel of the thinkers and visionaries with the bigger wheel of the people. You need the, the intermediary operational leaders. And those are the ones who reach out now and, and, and train. It's uh, maybe 5 to 10% of the people that are willing to do that kind of thing. But a lot of their training is, is designed for those kinds of people. And I remember um, this, this great quote from Napoleon. He talked about uh, the best general on the battlefield, the operational leader who directs the troops on the ground, which is the kind of people we're trying to train and lead. He said, a poor general on the battlefield sees too many things. I see only the enemy's main body, not the details. So that thing about seeing too many things, that's, you know, when I get on the call with people, that's the first impression I get. Their minds and thoughts and vision are all over the map. It's caught up on a hundred little details, and they're not stepping back and looking at the main body of the enemy. And that takes a certain discipline. You've got to wean your mind from the way it's being taught to think and the way you're bombarded on a system controlled by the adversary called the Internet. And I remember Owen Lucas in one of our interviews said, well, would Robin Hood have gone into the hall of the Sheriff of Nottingham to plan how to overthrow the Sheriff of Nottingham? No. So why would we use the Internet set up and run and monitored by the adversary as a way to organize? It's at best a source of some information, but a spark and a springboard for us to take action on the ground, face-to-face, which is where our real power lies. So today um, we're going to talk about the practical and the political and the spiritual, and I'll do a reflection mid-break from one of our sister movements that called the Covenanters, which is really a movement within the mainstream churches to get the people out, get, the, get them back into a direct relationship with Creator, God, Christ, however you put it, and um, then also talking in the latter half of the show of how we apply some of you know, the, the higher values we're talking about. First of all, I want to uh, uh, quote from, um, <laughs> there's a great play, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's called Marat Saad. Jean-Paul Marat was a French revolutionary, and Marquis de Sade, of course, was you probably heard about, uh, this philosopher who was kept in the Bastille for his sadistic writings. 
But they have in the play Marat Saad, um, there's a debate between Marat, the revolutionary, and Saad, kind of the, the uh, ivory tower academic. And Marat is talking about why revolutions don't succeed. He said, no restless ideas can ever break down the walls. I never believed the pen alone could destroy institutions. However hard we try to bring in the new, it comes into being only in the midst of clumsy deals. We're all so clogged with dead ideas passed from generation to generation that even the best of us don't know the way out. We invent the revolution, but then we don't know how to run it. Look, it's like this. Everyone wants to keep something from the past, a souvenir of the old regime. This man decides to keep a painting. This one keeps his mistress. This man keeps his horse. He keeps his garden. Another keeps his estate. This man keeps his country house. This one keeps his factories. This man couldn't bear to part with his shipyards. This one keeps his army, and that one keeps his king. And so we stand here and write into the Declaration of the Rights of Man, the holy right of property. And now we find where that leads. Every man is equally free to fight fraternally and with equal arms, of course. Every man his own millionaire. Man against man, group against group, in happy mutual robbery. And ahead of them, the springtime of mankind, the budding of trade and industry, one enormous financial upsurge. And we stand here more oppressed than we, we had begun. And we think the revolution's been won. And I like to quote that because uh, it's, it's such a brilliant summing up of the reason revolutions fail in history. They get caught up in short-term, selfish self-interest, and they lose sight of the bigger picture. And all the time we're trying to, again, like Napoleon says, look at the main body, look at the bigger picture of history and, and the, the whole world that we're caught up in. I tried to do that in one of my books, um, which, again, you can see online. Murderbydecree.com has them all listed. This one, uh, one I wrote last year called Memoirs of a Revolutionary, looks at the last 50 years, how the global corporate police state came about, the COVID police state. And um, in one of the sections, uh, you know, I mentioned very important thinker, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote this thing called The Social Contract. And he said right at the very beginning, he was really the philosopher of the French and the American revolutions. He talked a lot about, you know, people governing themselves without any kind of monarch, um, including economic monarchs, billionaires who can get into government and say they speak for all of us, which is absurd. Uh, not mentioning any names. Well, of course, I'll mention the name Donnie Trump and and uh, Joe Biden and uh, Vlad Putin and all the other billionaire oligarchs who think they get to run things in our name because we believe in that king, like the techno-surf peasants fighting in wars for their own king. How do we govern ourselves, folks? Anyway, Jean-Jacques Rousseau taught us how to do that on the social contract. And his, he starts by saying, we begin with people as they are and how they might be, not how we imagine them to be. We, uh, we're social animals, and yet we're raised in a very regimented culture, which has taught us that the few always rule the many. Well, when, when you examine people as they are, we find that over thousands of years, there's a lot of things working against us. We've been made almost structurally incapable of governing ourselves. And um, Rousseau kicks this whole discussion off in one of his books, The Discourse on the Origin of Inequality. He says, the first man who fenced in a piece of land and said, this is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him, that man was the true founder of civil society. 
from how many crimes, wars, and murders, and from how many horrors and misfortunes might not any one of these have been spared mankind. By pulling up the stakes, by filling in the ditch, and crying to his fellow men, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all of us, and the earth belongs to no one. Well, that's our natural state of being. And yet we're raised, you know, like in a traditional hunter-gatherer society, freedom and liberty was a selected characteristic. It allowed us to survive, to be free and independent. But as soon as we got in urban societies and class-based society arose, we got divorced from nature. And human behavior became oriented in the other direction, not towards freedom, but towards uniformity and control, because that's how you kept people together in a city to increase food production, to feed all of them. Everybody had to be regimented. So we've got millennia working against us when we talk about how do we come, become free? How do we become fully politically and spiritually free people? You can't do it in isolation. You've got to do it in the form of a new collective, a new society. That's why we talk all the time about sovereign assemblies, our own common law courts, not simply filling out papers so that I individually can be free, which is kind of like a cell in the body saying, hi, I'm free and independent now. No, it's, it's that whole sense of collectivity, a new kind of collectivity, where you, you balance the, the liberty of the individual with the obligation and responsibility that person has towards the whole society. That's really the meaning of the social contract book, and it's why it inspired the French and the American and really the Russian Revolution, and it's why it's banned in the schools. Ever heard about it? Not until now probably. So, you know, it's, it's something to realize when we're talking about liberty in that, that um, it's, we've been ingrained not to be free. And that's the first thing that we're dealing with all the time, that struggle. So when we take this on and we start talking about um, how to go about doing that, there's always a contrast between the dedicated few and the sluggish and, you know, slow majority it runs through every movement and every group of people. And I've learned that um, and it has impressed on me the lesson all the time that the first step to success in our movement doesn't lie in mobilizing throngs of people, but rather in uniting and refining a conscious leadership that together can endure the struggle, can remember, and can generalize all of the lessons of the struggle. In other words, the people who are in it for the long haul, not for the people, the dabblers and babblers, I call them, who come and dabble into an issue and then move on to something else because the Internet has slowed their uh, attention span down to three seconds. Um, you know, it's, it's more basic. We have to not worry about the numbers. And it's kind of a concern, you know, when people in different common groups write to me and say, we had just had a gathering of 200 people, and there's another 300 who are going to come out. Well, that isn't a good sign because of those 200, you will probably find 10 who are serious. The rest will dilute it and distract everyone. And as a matter of fact, I often say to people, do not go down to the level of the lowest. That's a democratic principle, but in war, which is what we're in, we're in a guerrilla war, a war to the death, really, between humanity and the corporatocracy. In a war, going to the level of the lowest is suicide. You have to raise the lowest person to the level of the highest, and that's done by self-conscious leadership. That's really the, uh, the people that these books, all my books are aimed at in all of our work. Uh, murderbydecree.com and republicofcanada.org. And I address that specifically in this book, Memoirs of a Revolutionary. Well, 
the uh, the thing about nowadays is that um, we're up against, of course, a much bigger adversary, and a lot of us assume we know who that adversary is and what that adversary is. But I, I over the years, you know, what I did routinely because I often review of everything we're doing and what I've been going through. We have to relearn common sense all the time. I recently compiled an inventory of the best victories won in our campaigns over the years. And this is not just over the last 30, but the last 50 years that I've been involved in these political campaigns and, and learning from them over half a century. And in every case that we won a victory, it's because people relied on their own natural judgment rather than what, rather than what they had been taught. The decisive factor in battles is the determination and will to triumph. And that's strongest among people who figure things out for themselves without referring to others or to an abstract blueprint or program of what we should be doing. And similarly, the best progress is being made today in our sovereign republic movements among people who don't wait for directions, but they act from what they know is right, and then they measure what the outcome is. So they act first and then analyze it. They don't think about acting, because here's the thing. Our minds will betray us in many situations. Our minds will often come up with many reasons why we shouldn't act. Well, we can't protest at that church. You know, it, it might uh, offend some people in our ranks, or it might get the police angry at us. We might get arrested. We can't go to bat for this person. We might get in trouble, too. I might, our mind is always turning us into cowards. But action speaks differently. When you act out of a resolve saying, look, we've got to act, we're not going to let any more children get trafficked, we're not going to let our, our friends be locked up in prison anymore, like our brother in, in a Danish prison, Sigmund, who was grabbed, and even though he's Norwegian, and stuck away in a Danish prison to rot for two months as a test case to see how far they can push people. We, when we realize with that resolve, we can't let that happen anymore, then we act. And then we think about it after and say, what happened? What, what did we learn from it? That's the way we really learn, and that's the way we unite in action. It's like, again, Napoleon said, he was asked once, how do you prepare for a battle? And he says, I don't. I never have a final plan. I begin something, and then I see what happens. That's the key to understanding the fluid nature of reality. You move around the rocks created by your adversary. You use every attack on you by turning it back on them, not running away because a defensive stance invites attack. We turn it back on them and use it as an opportunity to expose them and to gain the upper hand. That worked over many years. That's why we forced out the truth of genocide, forced a pope to resign, and is now spreading the common law gospel all over the planet. It's because we never gave up and we read The Art of War, and I urge you to do that. We summarize it in one of my books, The Common Law Training Manual. At the end of uh, the, um, that book, we summarize 50 of the basic lessons of Art of War. And if you listen to the previous show especially the last two or three shows. We go into that in detail. So go to our archive, uh, bbsradio.com slash who we stand. Just scroll down on the front page there. You'll see all of our shows archived, and it's a great listening and educational tool. Well, by relying on our natural common sense, it makes us supple and able to respond on our own terms to the basic unpredictability of life. Life is not predictable. It's, there are only two constants in the universe conflict and change. That's the nature of the universe. That's the nature of our life. As much as we try to avoid that and pretend we can have safe existences, it, it's funny how we all try to prop up the one thing that we can't, which is our own mortality. We're all going to die. You've got to face that. The question is, how are you going to die? 
on your terms or on somebody else's, fighting for liberty or going along with slavery to eke out a few more moments of a slave existence. You've got to make that choice, how you're going to die. And it's interesting, when you key your mind, like any soldier before combat, when you key your mind to not how do I hold on to my life, but how do I seek out what I need to do, regardless of the consequence, including death, then you lose your fear of death, and you're able to fight on. And well, that's my answer to people when they often say, how do you keep going with this, Kev? You get hardened over time. You become a veteran, and then you can teach others. And I, I realize that's a lot of what I do these days. Um, and by the way, if you want to write Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com for any of the things you're hearing today, that's a, kind of the coordinating body of our work really all over the world now. Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. Write to me personally, AngelFire101 at ProtonMail.com. So if you think rigidly and de- in a dependent way, it's a recipe for disaster. And it's, it, you know, I, I use the example from Canada, how within two months of the COVID dictatorship breaking out in March 2020, we had over 40 assemblies of hundreds of people who that had gathered to pass their own laws, to nullify the COVID measures, to rally and defend people. And the reason those collapsed, there was some sabotage that went on, including on the West Coast, where China's moving in in a big way, and where they don't want people gathering in assemblies and governing themselves. But the main reason the assemblies collapsed is because people pulled back. They, there was, um, a, you could see a struggle going on in their minds. Do I really want to face this risk? Do I really want to create a new world and step out from the comfort of the old? So, you know, there's that, that continual struggle between security and liberty. And there's two minds in us all the time, and there's a civil war going on in our minds all the time, just like there is in society between those two poles, liberty, security. And um, to overcome that struggle in yourself, you've got to face both openly. But normally, in our daily life, we, we live kind of a schizophrenic, dissociated existence where we don't have to face those two minds. But when you're called to take an action, like, be in an, in an assembly, pass a law, become a sheriff, make citizen arrest, then you've got to face that dichotomy in yourself. And a lot of people don't like doing that. So they step back. And the way to justify the, them bailing out, and I see this all the time, they justify their abandonment of the struggle by getting mad at us, those of us who aren't, you know, leaving the scene of battle and deserting. They say, oh, Kevin didn't tell us the truth. He's a con man or... You know, all of the smear jobs you see all over the Internet, it isn't simply state-manufactured smears. Those smears only work if they find soil in which to grow among people. You know, people can see through a lie unless they have need of the lie, and those who are cowardly retreating need a lie to justify where they're doing it. So they blame. They, they, they point fingers and blame, which is, of course, the act of a child. It's the stage we're in when we haven't learned to take responsibility for ourselves. But we're speaking not to those people, but to those who endure. And I really recommend this book, Memoirs of a Revolutionary, for that reason. Now, we're going to listen to a recording I did. It was really a reflection I did four years ago. And it was for a group called the Covenanters, which is a group of really dissident, you could call them Christians. I don't like using the word because it, it hides more than it reveals these labels. But um, it's written for those who are looking in a spiritual relationship with Christ, uh, not the church, not religion, but their own relationship with the higher being, that what in our indigenous traditions we call the great mystery. And in it, uh, we talk about the theme of the show today, which is really 
the revolutionaries become the the new world is among us. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus called it, is already among us. You just have to step into it. We're going to listen to this uh, mini-sermon I did, and we'll be back in about 18 minutes. Hi again, everyone. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice, and I'm today giving you another sermon from the Covenanters, a separatist political and spiritual movement, of which I am a minister. And it's part of a series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of Scripture, for refugees from false religion. Today's sermon is for the upcoming second Sunday in Advent, December 8, 2019. It's taken from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, and it's entitled, The Divine Slash and Burn. The theme taken from the words of John the Baptist, Repent and change, for the kingdom of heaven is here now. Prepare a clear way for God and remove all obstacles, for the axe is already chopping and the deadwood is being thrown into the fire. Well, the local West Coast people called him Crazy Charlie. He was a Coast Salish Indian who lived years ago as a hermit in the wilderness of Valdez Island. At night, Charlie would creep out through the dense underbrush and cut down old-growth cedar trees with a chainsaw. Then he'd pile them all up and put them to the torch. (laughs) That went on for a few years until the Mounties finally caught up with him and put him away where so many other Indians end up. The cops claimed that Charlie was an ex-logger and a psycho, but nobody ever heard from Charlie himself why exactly it was that he went around chopping down and burning up the forest. Well, I thought about Charlie and his people when I read today's Gospel reading of John the Baptist announcing the coming of Christ. That tale, like the lives of Native people, fits last week's biblical message of the sudden ending of one world and the beginning of another. Because that's exactly what happened, of course, to West Coast Indigenous people in barely 50 years during the early 19th century. Most of their society was wiped out that quickly by our churches, by our germ warfare, by our cannon fire, leaving refugees like Crazy Charlie to stumble through the ruins. Well, in today's Gospel lesson, a similar ending is announced by a guy a lot like Charlie, a lonely hermit and refugee from society who's on a mission a man we know as John the Baptist. Well, John hung out in the wilderness of Judea, on the margins of society, just like Charlie did, because that's the only place where divine truth can really be heard. The babel of the city is never a home for prophets. And there in the freedom of space, John tells his listeners that the ending of all that they know has actually begun. If they want to survive what's happening, they'll have to change their ways now, not tomorrow. They'll have to repent. That's the word he uses. They've got to repent, and that means clearing away and bringing down everything inside ourselves and outside ourselves that stands in the way of a new world called the kingdom of heaven. It also means welcoming the one who's inaugurating that world, the man called Jesus, the Christ. Well, repent is a really significant word in Scripture. It's, in fact, the first word ever spoken in the Gospels the first directive and exhortation given in Jesus' work. Repentance sets the tone for all of Jesus' subsequent teachings. It's really like the first word spoken in an exorcism, when the evil spirit is named and ordered to stop what it's doing. In the same way, the possession of our minds and lives by an anti-God world spirit must first be broken and walked away from if any kind of change is going to be possible in us. That's in fact the way that the early Christians saw their baptisms, not as a ritual, 
but as a spiritual cleansing and exorcism that permanently separated them from a satanic world of lies and violence and made them citizens of heaven. But what does that word repent actually mean? Well, that depends whether you read the Greek or the Hebrew. Greek is a language of the New Testament, and it understands repentance as just a change in one's philosophical attitude, like, as in, I was wrong, I need to look at things differently now. Repentance in Greek is the word metanoiste, and it simply means to think different. But in Hebrew, it's interesting because in Hebrew, to repent is to do something radically different, to do something. The Hebrew word for repent is Shabbat, and it means to turn and walk away from something in a totally new direction, in other words, to be different. And so while the words of John the Baptist have come down to us through the Greek language, the spirit and meaning behind his words, just like Jesus' own words, is thoroughly Hebrew. John is calling people to action, to live radically different lives since a new world has already begun among them. In a way, it makes it easy. It's like the new world is here. Just join it. You don't have to create it. It's here. Walk in, folks. But what then are people supposed to do, according to John the Baptist? Well, when you look at the complete Greek translation, here's what he says. Clear a way for God and make his way straight and righteous. Remove every obstacle to God in order to make his presence and way possible. So there's that interesting partnership between us and God. It's initiated by God, but it depends on our response, our action. Grace, faith. The key words of the Protestant Reformation. Well, in other words, the new world has arrived, as we've said, but to receive it and to make it possible, we have to remove anything blocking or preventing it in ourselves, in the world. That is what repenting looks like in practice, not just in theory. Well, this call to change by John to his listeners is really a preamble to a bigger drama. What becomes obvious as the story in Matthew 3 unfolds is that the real decisive action is coming from God. We have to step out of the clutter and blockage in our lives, but only in order to receive the transformation that God is establishing. God is the author and creator of the new world, not we by ourselves, even though we're partners with God in the effort. In other words, heaven has launched a revolution, and everything not of God is coming down, present tense. You notice all of this is present tense. It's an occurrence occurring now. In other words, because of this revolution, it's time for each one of us to make a choice because, guess what, folks? There's no middle ground. As John proclaims, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we have no better proof of that than looking around these days at the increasing exposure of crimes within the official Christian churches. It's coming down. This cataclysmic language of a divine slashing and burning only intensifies when Jesus himself enters the story. According to John, the Christ will, quote, baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He will make clean his thresher, gather the wheat into the barn, and burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. The heart is an organ of love, they say, so is God. In other words, that passion of Christ and the new world that is here now is separating people. It's gathering God's chosen ones together, will destroy the others and all that other stuff, like so much refuse. 
That's a process that the people of Jesus' time could really understand, since most of them were peasants or landless peasants. And they slashed and burned their crops to replenish the earth every year and to survive. From out of that burning came renewed life. They all knew that. And as in nature, so in heaven. Well, uh, this biblical account of Matthew is a death and life language of conflict and separation and ending. It represents the hard truth of how genuine change actually occurs. The old has to be purged for the new to arise. That's true within us. That's true around us. Ironically, though, that's not the kind of message that's very palatable or understandable for a lot of us, especially if we're fed on the spiritual pablum and false words of official Christianity. Those words seek to bolster and maintain our present life at the expense of our eternal life. And so not surprisingly, and just like last week's gospel message, once again the Christian Church's official contrivance called the weekly lectionary, their choice of the things you're going to hear in church, that lectionary stepped in again to edit and gut today's reading. This Sunday's Christian congregations will not hear all of Matthew chapter 3, but only the part up to verse 12. The finale to the chapter from verses 13 to 17 has been totally cut out. Now this is really strange because that those last verses are a vital part of the story. In fact, probably the most vital part. They describe the baptism of Jesus himself and his adoption by God. They say, And when Jesus was baptized by John, the heavens were opened unto him, and John saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon Jesus. And a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, in truth, all of John the Baptist's words until then are a prelude to, and the reason for this foundation event, where Jesus the man is claimed and named by God as the Christ, the first of the chosen remnant who will comprise the new kingdom of heaven, or in Jesus' Aramaic language, the realm of eternity. But the church lectionary has cut all of this out. Now, why would they do that? Well, I have a simple answer, based on experience. (laughs) Because the church hierarchy has always been threatened by the true biblical message, which is one of liberation from below, not conformity imposed from above. God has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. Blessed are those who are poor now, for they shall be satisfied. But woe unto those who are rich, for they have received their satisfaction. What you do to the least of my people, you do to me. And these are the words of Jesus right out of Scripture. And they embody the same spirit of liberation that broke the chains of Hebrew slaves and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. And that spirit speaks of God's plan of a new society where there is no higher low, no rich or poor, but one community of equality and love. Or as John the Baptist said, God will even all the rough places and every mountain will be brought low so that all mankind may see the glory of God together as one. Well, this kind of complete equality is what the first Christian communities actually embodied. As Paul describes in the book of Acts when he writes, And all those who were in Christ were of one mind and heart. They claimed nothing for themselves, but held all their possessions in common, so that there were no poor persons among them. That is repentance and love in practice. The true gospels and mind of God always bend toward that kind of human liberation. Well, such a liberating God could only choose as his beloved son someone born in poverty, the child of a scandalized, unwed mother like Mary, the poor, landless peasant named Eshua, or 
Jesus in Greek. Not a king or a rich favored son, but one plucked anonymously from the crowd. Well, quite simply, if I had uttered this same claim a few centuries ago, namely that Jesus wasn't born divine, but was a poor peasant adopted by God and appointed as the first of a new line of humanity, well, frankly, people, I would have been handed a one-way trip to an Inquisition barbecue. Because then or now, what terrifies religious potentates is the message that the poor are chosen by God, that God is the sovereign maker of history and social change, that God is an active force in our lives and can raise even the most destitute man or woman to glory. That fact does away with any need for wealthy churches or sacraments or doctrine or for so-called popes or bishops or priests who falsely pretend to speak for God and mediate truth to the rest of us. The church has substituted itself for God and so must deny God's real presence in practice. But as John the Baptist proclaims and reminds us, God is present here and now. God breaks through all of that. God is breaking open a new pathway for the pure of heart by cutting down everything that's rotten and dead in our world and throwing all of it into a fire of judgment. Well, I had a remarkable experience of that power some years ago in the company of people like Charlie, our Veldez Island tree cutter. The incident took place, ironically, in a big Catholic cathedral in downtown Vancouver. What happened there made history and changed history, thanks to God. Well, there were 50 of us outside the church that Sunday morning in March of 2008. Most of us were native men and women who had endured torture and worse at what the killers still call Indian residential schools. We were there in the spirit of many children who were murdered at the hands of the Church of Rome and buried in secret. We were there to demand their remains back and to name those who killed them and who are still killing children. Well, I knew there was a hidden hand at work that day when the usual gang of church thugs and Vancouver cops who routinely guarded the front church entrance from our protests, they were all absent that day. There was no one there, just a door standing wide open. Well, to paraphrase John the Baptist, and this is what occurred to me at the time, the path had definitely been, clear, definitely been cleared that morning and the obstacles were removed from us. So I said to people, let's go. I felt that same hidden hand guide me and the 15 others into the yawning mouth of that cathedral. And even then, that force we felt swept us into the cluttered church where people sang hymns to what they thought was God. We hoisted our banner that read, All the children need a proper burial, and turned to face the congregation. The priests were dumbstruck and immobilized. They didn't know what to do. And in the power of truth, we began to speak to them about their church's crimes and the dead thing they inhabited that needed to be brought down. Sure enough, the church did come down. I felt it that day in Holy Rosary Cathedral like a tr rotten tree falling to the ground. The criminal buckled quickly after that, actually within a week. Because the next week, after our occupation of the cathedral had made headlines across Canada, the government announced an inquiry into missing residential school children for the first time, and eventually, what came out of that, a so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, run by the criminals themselves. But even those duplicitous attempts at official containment and cover-up have all failed. The truth has finally been known, because like in any exorcism, the evil spirit had been named for what it is, and it started on that day. Ever since then, the false, child-killing Christian churches have been exposed for what they are. Everywhere they are losing their credibility and collapsing, as they should, like chaff being separated and burned in a huge fire of judgment. 
On that Sunday in March of 2008, a crowd of impoverished Indians imbued with the truth cleared the way for God to bring down the oldest lie on our planet. The hand of God was with us that day, toppling the mighty from their thrones and filling the righteous poor with a new spirit. That same Holy Spirit that adopted Jesus continues to reverberate and grow and open new pathways to the realm of eternity that, that is among us, working to discard and destroy the old corruption. While, well, friends, that divine separation is upon us now, its presence terrifies some of us, those who are chaff, and gives hope to others who are the good wheat. Jesus says later in the Gospels that he didn't come to bring peace to humanity, but instead a sword of judgment to divide people and set them against each other, and to let light a fire on the earth. That's what the truth always does, whether it's in a family, in a church, or in the world. It consumes all of our lies and crimes in the face of a higher love that midwives a new world into being. But so few of us are willing to repent from this present world of death and suffer such division, to suffer the loss of friends and loved ones, and face the terrible, inevitable persecution and crucifixion that comes simply for that love and for that truth. Many of us are called to that purpose, but few can ever do God's will. But those few who can and do are the seeds of the new world, and God knows and protects his own. But is it really possible? Can heaven reach out even to you and me and ask us to be part of this transformation, just as Jesus asked John to baptize him and help join God with mankind? Will we hesitate and disbelieve such an invitation as John did at first? Or will we welcome the great fire that destroys and creates? Well, that choice is yours, but make it now, for the way of God has arrived. I'm Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. More to come. Thank you. And we're back. Got an email from someone as it was playing was saying, Kevin, why do you keep using the God, God word? <laughs> okay, well, I use the God word because it's simpler when you're saying a sermon, especially to people used to using that word, to say God than the great mystery every sentence. <laughs> so in a way, it's a question of convenience. But we won't get caught up on the words. Um, there is no definition of the Almighty, of the eternity, the eternity within us, don't forget, Jesus said, it's the kingdom is within you, not in a communion wafer, not in a church, not in a belief. It's within all of us. And that seed often doesn't come out in a lot of us, but when it does, it doesn't need a language, it doesn't need a word. So that use of the word God is a matter of convenience. I think you understand, those of you who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. So, now I was going to spend the rest of the hour in the 12 or so minutes we have left, 10 minutes, um talking about this thing called chi. Now, chi is, in the Art of War, you'll see Sun Tzu use that a lot. He says it's the essential energy of an opponent or of a situation. Uh, he has this famous quote, whoever grasps and holds the essential energy or chi of a situation will control the outcome of any battle and the fate of any opponent, no matter how powerful they are. The discussion of chi is essential because we need to find that within ourselves to overcome it in a bigger adversary. And a few of us have overcome a bigger adversary using that our ownership of our own chi. And I want to get into that. Let's get into that next week. We don't have time right now to do it justice. 
I do want to end, though, on a, a personal story, which I think sums up even more what we've been talking about today. It was a place uh, very unexpected. It was in southern Mexico, and I was there in 1987 on a... It was funny. I was training for the ministry in the United Church, who, just as they were slaughtering Native children in Canada, sent human rights delegations to Guatemala to investigate the slaughter of Indian people there, maybe as a guilty conscience or a way to distract from their own crimes at home. Regardless, I went down to Guatemala on this fact-finding tour, and I went to a, a village of refugees from actually one of the worst genocides in uh, in Central America, in Guatemala, about 150,000 people slaughtered. And um, the refugees were living in these camps on the Guatemala-Mexican border in Chiapas, uh, where the Zapatista, the Zapatista uh, rebellion broke out later. But um, I went there, and I was met by this guy. He was a lot like somebody I would become. He was a former priest called Fidel, which means faithful in Spanish. And he'd been booted out. He, got, uh, he had been sent to, quote, convert the Mayan Indians to Catholicism. He said, no, they ended up converted me to true Christianity. And uh, as a result, the bishop uh, threw him out of the church. He was a defrocked priest, like I would be one day. Not a priest, but you know what I mean. Defrocked former pastor, working among the Quiche and Mayan Indians. And um, Fidel showed me around the camp. It, about three day, uh, years later, he was actually killed. The local landowner didn't like his sermons to the peasants, and so this was in 1990 they killed him. Uh, the bishop gave information where he would be and church and state working together again with the rich, and they killed their opponent. But his spirit is still there, I know. And he was a really great guy. He was a small little guy with a big beard and very soft brown eyes. And um, he said to me, you know, he showed me around the camp, and he said, well, these are the people who showed me what Christ in the flesh is all about. You'll see what I mean. And sure enough... Of all the people I've ever met in my life, these were the ones who loved each other in practice. And I meant literally every day. They had nothing. Every month, about over 100 children died of dysentery, typhus, starvation, all of the things. A lot of kids had rickets. Um, and yet, they cared for each other. And they owned everything together. They owned it all collectively. And their biggest, most prized possession was their little classroom made out of cane uh, sugar cane, um, uh, sugar cane shack, where they taught their language and their traditions to their children. That was more important to them than food, because they said that they were in a war with this evil spirit who inhabited the bodies and minds of the soldiers who had killed all of them. The Guatemalan soldiers killed their people. They said the soldiers can't harm us because they can only hurt our bodies. Our real enemy is Zabalba who's the creator and destroyer, who seeks out human hearts to eat. He tests each one of us to see who can be eaten and who stands in the presence of Honabku, the only source whose heart is our heart and who cannot be destroyed. So Honabku to the indigenous, you know, the great, the creator, the great mystery, the one people call God, couldn't be taken from them. And the proof of that is always proof in the flesh, after uh, going through the camp all day, uh, they invited us in to dinner. And we came into the shack, and this one little kid took me by the hand. He kind of adopted me, and he was leading me around. Uh, you could barely see. 
you know, because of his eye disease. But he leaped, led me into this little shack and sat down. And we all, you know, I expected to eat what they ate, which is basically dry tortillas. Instead, the four of us from Canada were given their best food. We, there was a little pile of beans and scrambled eggs on our plates, not on theirs. They had about six chickens in the whole camp, you know, of 5,000 people. And they gave us the best food, the food that could have kept their own children alive that night, they gave to us. Because in their tradition, you give the best to a stranger. You share. Sharing to another is more important than putting it in your own mouth. That's how they survive. That indigenous spirit we all once had to share with each other. Because we don't, we don't see a difference between each other. It's just all there. We're one, as Christ embodied, as we're all to embody, that realm of eternity. And I didn't want to eat it at first, but remember Fidel took me by the arm and said, don't insult them, eat it. And I did. And it was, it was like, you know, when they say, my body broken for you, it was their body broken for us. And I learned something that day. It was preparing me because I didn't know that Fidel was going to die. I didn't know that my life was going to be destroyed like his was one day in Canada for doing the same thing, standing by the indigenous victims of our so-called church, satanic body posing as a church. I realized it was preparing me. I didn't know that till later, but it was preparing me for my own struggle, that some of their spirit entered in, into me that day, and it survived, just like some of Fidel is still in me. They can't kill that spirit, ever. And we have to discover that. And we find it in the poorest places, in ourselves and in the world. I found it in a little shack in Mexico. I found it in the poorest place in myself when I lost my own children and my livelihood, and I was blacklisted and I had to live out of my car. That's when I found it. Comfort kills it. Security kills it. Suffering brings it out in us. And that is our great gift and our weapon that they can never overcome. They don't know how to fight that. Only when we have the courage to stand in that, friends, can we triumph. We already have triumphed. That kingdom is already among us. Kingdom, not kingdom, but kingdom is among us already. That's our message for today. I hope you take it to heart. I know you will, if you hear me. I know you do. That's why you're listening today. And we're going to go out on a similarly beautiful message. It's called The World Turned Upside Down. It's about a great event that happened in the English Revolution when a group called the Diggers said it's time to take back the earth just the way God intended it to be. No one owns the earth. We're to share it in common. And the triumph of their movement, its destruction, but how its spirit lives on. We're going to be back again next week preparing you to be armed for the struggle over the long haul so your children and your grandchildren can continue this long battle. Follow us, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org. Write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Most importantly, friends, take this to heart, live it, and embodiment. And go in those alleys, the alley in yourself, the alley in the world, and search for the lost Christ, the poor, starving one, who will help bring you to a glory you didn't understand until you suffered in the same way. I thank you, friends. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I look forward to talking to you more soon. Stay strong and stay clear. song about a bunch of guys and women who were inspired by the Bible. In the 1640s, they were inspired by the Bible to chop off the head of the King of England. In 1649, they 
George's Hill. A ragged band they call the figures came to show the people's will. They died the landlord and they defied the law. They were the dispossessed with claiming what was theirs. Come in peace, they said, to dig and sow. We come to work the land in common and to make the waste ground grow. This earth divided, we will make whole. So it shall be a common century for all. The sin of property, we do disdain. No man has any right to buy and sell the earth for crime it gave by the man murder. The laws should chain us well. The clergy dazzle us with heaven, or they damn us into hell. We will not worship the God they serve, the God of greed who fills the rich while poor folks starve. We work, we eat together. We need no swords. We will not bow to the masters or pay rent to the Lord till we are free. Stand up for glory, stand up now yeah. From the men of property, the orders came they sent the hired men and traverse to wipe out the diggers' claims. Tear down their cottages and destroy their corn. They were dispersed, but still the vision lingers on. You poor take courage, you rich take care. This earth was made a common treasury for everyone to share. All things in common, all people one. In peace, the orders came to cut them down. We come in peace, the orders came to cut them down. Man department, ladies and gentlemen. The world turned upside down. Leon Russellson wrote that. We had a great time here at the Pace Party. Hope you have. Listen, did anybody film that? Because it was great. I had one for you. Oh, yeah? how, much, uh, how much time do we have?